name is Laura Montgomery. I am I'm a member of the BBA Criminal Law Steering Committee, and I'm also um, an ADA at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, where I've been for 14 years. I'm in the Child Protection Unit. Um, today, our presenters are going to be Jeff Garland, who is a um, lawyer for the Committee for Public Counsel Services, where he's been for uh, 10 years. Prior to that, he clerked for two years, and um, he's been practicing mainly in all the courts, actually, in Suffolk County. Um, but mostly right now he's in Dorchester and Suffolk Superior Court. And our other presenter today is Amanda Sheehan. She is a colleague of mine at the District Attorney's Office in Suffolk County. Um, she started there in 2002 um, and she was an ADA in Roxbury there and then became the supervisor of that court. Um, she then was promoted to Superior Court. She joined the Gun Prosecution Task Force and then went to the Major Felony Unit um, before leaving the office in 2006 um, to go into private practice uh, where she was a bar advocate um, and also a private attorney in Suffolk County um, practicing criminal defense. Uh, and then she returned to my office, to our office, uh, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office in January of 2020 um, as the supervisor of Roxbury District Court. So I'll turn it over to them now. Oh, hold on. So uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, while Laura pulls up the slides, um, so we're talking today about uh, evidentiary motions um, in the state courts uh, of Massachusetts and primarily focused for um, new attorneys, for law students um, who might be practicing soon. Um, and so mostly thinking about uh, district municipal courts of Massachusetts, but 99% um, of what we say is, is applicable to Superior Court too. Um, and so um, when we think about evidentiary motions, um, you know, most motions involve evidence of some sort, uh, most substantive motions, uh, be it an affidavit or um, a police report or a search warrant. But when we talk about evidentiary motions, we're talking about motions that are asking for an evidentiary hearing, meaning a hearing where witnesses are actually gonna testify. Um, and most of the time we're talking about motions to suppress. Um, because that is what a lot of the um, evidentiary motions that you end up doing in practice are. And so um, uh, thanks to uh, Dolly Mapp um, and her case Mapp versus Ohio, the uh, exclusionary rule applies to state courts. So if the police violate your client's rights, um, you as a defense lawyer can file a motion to suppress the evidence that results that the fruit of the poisonous tree. Um, next slide, please. And so um, the sort of classic evidentiary motion to suppress you think about is for warrantless searches and seizures. Now, I'm not going to get into too much into doctrine or um, stuff like that, because that's the, the substance of these things is a, is a um, you know, semester long course unto itself. And many of you have taken that course, um, or you can read about it in books. Um, but the, the sort of logistics, the strategy, the practicalities, it's a little bit harder to get of books and, and from books. And that's what we're sort of mostly talking about today. But the substance matters because um, the substance drive the, drives the procedure and different types of motions, different types of claims are gonna have different burdens, um, different standing rules. And Amanda's gonna talk about those specifically, um, but um, in different strategies. So, um, the classic one you think of is a warrantless search and seizure. Um, the police stopped your client, they arrested them, they searched them, they didn't have a warrant. Um, there's all sorts of different issues that can come up. Um, I'm not gonna get into them um, 
you know, in detail, but there's a, a non-exclusive list here. Um, and then next slide, please. Um, the classic example of what you think of as, as not an evidentiary motion, a non-evidentiary motion is a um, motion to suppress a search from a search warrant where the, um, you're just arguing, you know, the police didn't have probable cause to get the search warrant in the first place, therefore the evidence should be suppressed. But search warrants also, th those ones are done on the papers, you know, four corners motion, but there's a lot of um, warrant searches where you can get and may want to get evidentiary uh, hearings based on how they executed the warrant, um, what they seized, uh, where they seized it, um, did they lie when they got the warrant, uh, or sometimes you have cases where you know you may have a non-evidentiary component where you're just challenging um, the probable cause for the search warrant, but then you get into evidentiary issues of, well, what was the fruit of that warrant? And so something that happened downstream from that warrant, you're arguing that was caused by it and the Commonwealth was arguing it's too attenuated or it's not caused by it and that can be an evidentiary hearing. Um, motions to suppress identification based on um, uh, sometimes photo array motions may be evidentiary. Sometimes you're arguing um, the motion, um, the, the photo array was just suggestive in itself you know, your client's photo sticks out like a sore thumb, of course they're gonna pick your client out of all the photos they could pick. Um, sometimes that can just be done on the papers. Sometimes you wanna have witnesses who can testify about why those photos were chosen, how it was made. Sometimes the Commonwealth may wanna have witnesses who can explain, yeah, it's not the best photo array anyone's ever seen, but it was the best we could do given the distinctive characteristics of the defendant, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you are arguing about um, not the, actual composition of the photo array, but how it was administered, what the police said, that's going to often be evidentiary, um, as are what lineups uh, or show-ups, which is a, a one-person lineup, or when you're talking about um, in Massachusetts, you can move to suppress identifications that the police had nothing to do with, but just it was in such suggestive circumstances that it's unreliable. Um, statements, another classic uh, type of motion to suppress under uh, Miranda or uh, involuntariness or some of the other issues that come up with statements. Um, and then we're going to see a lot more of these soon, um, racial profiling motions, thanks to Commonwealth versus Long, um, which number one sort of maintained that suppression is the remedy for um, when the police are racially profiling a client for car stops that um, they, uh, they're making based on, at least in part on sort of racial grounds that are impermissible. Um, and they also sort of opened up the standard to how you can do these motions. So um, it used to be a lot harder. It was uh, one known successful motion in the previous case, Laura. Um, there's gonna be a lot more successful motions under long and a lot more litigation about this. Um, but it's not all motions to suppress. And so there's other types of evidentiary or, or motions you may file that may have evidentiary components or may involve evidence. So, um, you know, uh, the, from the Commonwealth's perspective, filing a uh, 58A motion to detain based on dangerousness or 58B based on um, violation of conditions of release. Uh, those are both uh, potentially evidentiary, though they also can be done in the papers. Um, no fixed motion from the defense side. These are motions where you're alleging that the police didn't follow the procedures for issuing a citation for um, traffic cases. 
And um, sometimes you can just do that on a paper, like they never filed it. It's not in the court file. You have a, a motion saying that, and that's that's how you go. Sometimes though, you're going to have testimony from the officers about why they did what they did and why not. Um, motions to dismiss for false or incomplete presentment of evidence. Um, that's usually a superior court thing, um, but can often be evidentiary. Motions about um, lost or destroyed evidence where you, the defense lawyer, are arguing the Commonwealth should be sanctioned for failure to preserve um, or sometimes intentional destruction of evidence. Um, those can be evidentiary, sometimes are, sometimes not. And then some motions in limine, um, when you're getting close to trial, may also involve evidentiary hearings or sort of warranty hearings um, to flesh those out. So you want to file a motion. Uh, what do you need? Um, the rules tell you some basic things. Um, so starting with um, rule 13, um, pretty basic. It has to be in writing, um, has to be signed. And you have to set forth the grounds with particularity. That's all Rule 13 requires. Um, I also always have put in a request for an evidentiary hearing just to make clear that you are um, actually requesting an evidentiary hearing and, and you're not just expecting to go on the papers. Um, you then you need an affidavit. And um, this is this is true for any motion, um, evidentiary or non-evidentiary, um, that's substantive. You need, um, you know, mass. Uh, Rule 13 says you need to have the facts relied upon in support. Um, it has to be signed by somebody. It has to be signed by somebody with personal knowledge of the factual basis. Um, and I put it in brackets as best as possible. Um, and so if we go to the next slide, um, you know, the what counts as personal knowledge is sometimes complicated. So um, most motions are going to require an affidavit from your client, um, usually because they were there, they were searched, they were seized, they made statements allegedly. Um, they, um, even if they weren't actually physically there, if they had some expectation of privacy that was violated, you know, the police searched a cell phone, it may have happened miles away from the client, but the client still has to have an affidavit establishing some sort of interest in that cell phone. Um, so all those things, you need an affidavit from your client to establish those things um, in order to get your hearing. Um, your client may not have to testify at the hearing, but you need an affidavit from your client just to establish the foundation of the claim. Um, you may want an expert. Um, so, uh, you know, it used to be a racial profiling motion. You pretty much needed an affidavit from an expert to get one in the first place. Um, now, um, thanks to Long, you may or may not actually need an expert at all, but you may want one. And um, you may not need an expert to get a hearing, but you may want to have an affidavit or a report that goes along with the motion or you may just want to have them testify at the hearing. Um, and then uh, oftentimes you, the lawyer, are writing an affidavit. So um, you were not a percipient witness uh, to the whatever happened, usually, um, and probably won't be doing the motion if, if you were a percipient witness. But um, sometimes there's discovery that um, establishes certain searches happen, and um, the police aren't going to write an affidavit for you. So you have to write the affidavit yourself. So um, again, for a phone search motion, if the police search your client's phone, you might have an affidavit from your client establishing their interest in the phone, and then an affidavit from you, the lawyer, saying, here's what my understanding, based on the, the Commonwealth's discovery that the police did search the phone in such a way, on such a date, et cetera. Um, sometimes you may have witnesses, uh, other witnesses' affidavits, that's rare, but possible. Um, and then many of these motions will include some combination of the above. 
So to follow up on the affidavit, one of the things that you have to consider um, from the defense side and then more importantly from the side of the prosecution is the affidavit requirement and the sufficiency um, of that affidavit because it must be sufficient to enable the judge to determine um, whether to conduct a hearing. So even defense counsel putting in their motion that they're requesting an evidentiary hearing doesn't necessarily get them that hearing. Uh, the motion and the affidavit itself need to require, need to uh, contain information sufficient to get that. Um, so you can see it must be sufficiently detailed to give fair notice to the prosecution of the particular search and seizure that's being challenged. Uh, the, the basis behind that is so that witnesses and evidence needed for the Commonwealth to meet its burden um, can be met. Uh, the Commonwealth needs to be able to prepare. Um, motions are supposed to be tailored to those specific issues. Uh, we'll get to this later, but it shouldn't sort of be a free-for-all hearing. Um, and so it should be tailored and the Commonwealth needs to know what, what seizure is being challenged, what search is being challenged, et cetera, so they can properly prepare. Um, affidavits can also be used to impeach the defendant. And this is something um, that you need to remember because oftentimes it can be forgotten, easily forgotten, um, that if a defendant takes the stand, that affidavit is permissible for the use, uh, for use of impeaching that individual. Um, if the motion and affidavit do not make it clear what the defendant's contending or seeking to suppress, the Commonwealth has the option and the opportunity um, to argue to the court that it needs to be more particularized, particularized, sorry, um, and move either so that it, it, it um, be amended. And we'll have an example for you later of an instance where actually I encountered this as a defense attorney in district court um, or you can even ask that uh, the motion be denied without a hearing. Um, so there's cases that I reference here, but Mubdi is actually probably one that, that's um, very much on point for each of these issues. Um, and it says that the motion and affidavit have to be detailed and the requirement, um, it, they have to be sufficient to establish two purposes. Um, the first is that it has to enable a judge to determine whether to conduct a hearing, as I said, so it has to include a statement of the anticipated evidence to meet the defendant's initial burden, and we'll get to burden later, uh, but the defendant's initial burden that evidence was obtained uh, through a search, um, and also that the defendant has standing to challenge that search and seizure. Um, and again, this is something we'll come to later, but that wouldn't necessarily apply in cases of automatic standing. Um, but two, give fair notice to the prosecution, as I said, of the particular search and seizure being challenged so that the prosecution can properly prepare. Um, it's very easy in district court, especially with the volume of cases that are coming through and the volume of cases that um, each prosecutor has to accept, you know, you get the motion, you get the affidavit, uh, you, you know, per, you quickly read it, seems sufficient. It's very easy to not dive deeper into it and necessarily pick up on whether or not something's missing. And obviously, a strategy of the defense is to put as little information in there as possible um, to, to just get the hearing, but then be able to attack multiple things and have the Commonwealth not prepared so that they can make an argument that there was a search and seizure that was impermissible. Um, so you really have to be careful to look closely at the motion uh, because the rules and the law is specific as to how the motion should be crafted. And you really have to look closely at the affidavit too. 
Um, and I'll touch more on that when we get to the, the example that I just previously referred to. Um, but Mobdi actually is a good case in terms of an insufficient affidavit where the defendant didn't make clear um, that there was a challenge to the search of a vehicle in that case, as well as his person um, incident to an arrest. And it just asserted that the police found certain items on his person. Um, so it was ambiguous as to whether the defendant was challenging the search of the car. Um, the Commonwealth failed to raise this actually at the time. And so later on down during the appeal, the Commonwealth was barred from raising this issue because it was not raised at the time um, prior to the motion being heard. So we, the Commonwealth loses their rights. So again, another reason um, to be careful in reviewing those motions and making sure that they are sufficient because if you miss that insufficiency and you don't challenge it prior to the hearing, um, then the Commonwealth loses its right to do so later. Jeff, you're muted. We have a, a good question from an attendee um, that uh, uh, Amanda can answer or I can answer. I don't know if you, um, I'll go ahead. Um, so, you know, will a motion be denied if it is not accompanied by an affidavit from the defendant, even though the motion itself has all the required information or is up to the judge's discretion? Um, it has to have an affidavit. Um, so if you have no affidavit, uh, it'll probably, it, it should be denied. Um, you know, district court, uh, sometimes it's a little bit wild west, uh, sort of like Amanda mentioned, sometimes things will just get going. And, and um, I've definitely, uh, I've also seen um, lawyers trying to write an affidavit at the last minute at the hearing because the judge has pointed out there isn't an, uh, an affidavit. Um, usually, I think judges should give um, people a chance to um, update instead of denying something outright. Um, but there's a chance that if you are writing at the day of, um, the prosecutor may very fairly say, uh, I wasn't expecting it to go this direction. And so, um, you know, if, if the affidavit has something beyond what's in the motion and they say, I, I wasn't expecting to try to prove this part, um, then, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to be the one asking for a continuance then so you can, uh, you know, give them a chance to respond to that. And that's kind of on you. Um, there are a few, you know, it specifically says affidavit from the defendant. There are a few cases where you can do a motion to suppress. Um, completely without an affidavit from the defendant. So I think, for instance, a motion to suppress, like a photo array motion, you're, the, you know, the assumption is the defendant has nothing to do with that. And that's purely about um, the fairness of the photo array, the how the photo array was presented. I think, I don't think you would need, um, Amanda, Laura, correct me if you think I'm wrong. I don't think you would need an affidavit from the defendant in that case, but 90% um, of motions, you're gonna have an affidavit from your defendant. So I just quickly would agree, because obviously that's not a situation the defendant's going to have any personal knowledge of other than, so they're writing an affidavit based on police reports written by other people. Um, but in an instance where I got a motion with no accompanying affidavit um, of a search, a warrantless search, I would absolutely move that the motion be denied as the rules require it, the law requires it. Um, it's very clear. So if there was no affidavit, I wouldn't even probably go for the first step of, of asking for it. I would argue that the motion be denied as, as there's no affidavit with um, statements of someone with personal knowledge of what happened. So here we have a, um, a sample motion. Um, this is a real motion of mine, somewhat anonymized. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, we can go to the next one and zoom in a little bit. 
Um, so um, here we go. You know, it's a, it's a warrantless searches and seizures motion, um, and it's pretty basic. There's not a lot there um, because, again, I'm sort of like I made a hint at that. I'm not looking to give the prosecution every hint of every way I expect this to go. I'm looking to get the basic claims out there, get my hearing, and then develop things. Um, also, I may not know how the evidence is going to go um, exactly, but so you know, here's here's the parts of it just to focus in a little bit. You know. Um, there's an introductory sentence, and then I'm listing some things I expect to be that I want to be suppressed. Um, and I've gone through the police report, and I've looked at the evidence that they're claiming, uh, and um, uh, I'm, I'm including a includes but not limited to because it does actually occasionally happen. You will learn new things during the hearing, uh, and you can try to get those suppressed too. But if if you had notice of it beforehand and you don't mention it in the motion. Um, be careful, or at least motion or affidavit, at least that be careful that the prosecution may um, say, well, well, we weren't expecting to defend that. Um, and then uh, next, I'm including some sources of law, um, very basic sources. So um, uh, next slide, yeah. So Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments, the U.S. Constitution. Um, but you never want to stop with the federal Constitution because then you have the Massachusetts Constitution. Next slide, please. Um, Article Fourteen uh, provides even more rights than. The federal constitution um, and so to the extent that um, especially in the search and seizure context i end up citing 99 percent of the time just state court cases because the the fourth amendment has been kind of whittled away by the u.s supreme court but um, article 14 is still strong uh, in many cases and um, there's also then um, the uh, you know statutory rights to certain things so um, general laws chapter uh, 276 includes a number of um, rights for um, warrants, which are then sometimes applied to warrantless seizures as well, and then um, sets out some restrictions on search incident to arrest, for instance. Um, so you always want to cite those ones too. Um, and then finally, um, you want to uh, ask to suppress, you know, not just the actual um, uh, direct results of that, but also, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree. So you noticed above, um, I was asking for statements. Um, they did not seize any statements from my client exactly. Um, and this is not a, a, even a Miranda um, type motion, but um, the statements are fruit of the stop and the arrest. And so if the police illegally arrest my client and then he confesses to everything, then those statements are fruit of that. And so that's part of the um, a warrantless search and seizure motion as well. Um, and here's my grounds. So, um, you know, Every lawyer has a different way of writing these and numbering them, and this is how I tend to do it. Um, this is not like uh, gospel. This is not. Um, I think you ask ten different lawyers how to do this, you're going to get ten different answers. But um, you know, you have to set some particularity, but you also aren't going to describe the whole thing in the motion. So um, the first one here, you know, there's no probable cause or other justification to stop, detain, or arrest Ms. Defendant. Um, Stop, detain, and arrest are actually potentially three separate legal issues. Um, you know, a stop is did they have reasonable suspicion based on Terry versus Ohio? Um, detain, you know, once they have a Terry stop, um, they can only detain for the reasonable length of that stop based on the actual purpose of the stop. Um, they can't just, once they have my client stopped, just keep um, detaining them. And then arrest requires probable cause for. Um, some sort of crime that is actually a subject of a warrantless arrest. Um, so I've sort of combined those all, uh, but there's the, I've, I've mentioned those three words, and so I've put the Commonwealth on notice on that. Um, 
and um, similarly with the next one, um, there's no probable cause or other justification to search um, the person of Ms. Defendant or any object. So there's two potential issues there. Um, they need probable cause or uh, some ground yield like searching screens for arrest grounds to search the person. Uh, and then they also, if they find you know, objects, containers, um, that's a separate analysis for whether they can search that. So I'm hinting at that. I'm not getting into a lot of detail. Um, and then finally, you know, there is no probable cause or other justification to search the car Ms. Defendant had been in. So um, just like Amanda talked about, and, and as the Mubdi case um, says, uh, you know, you can't just uh, expect that um, a car search is part of a motion to suppress, unless you actually mentioned the car. Um, now, car searches are very complicated. The law, there's very complicated, and there, you know, there's at least any car search is probably at least four different justifications in play. Um, you know, you can have there's the motor vehicle exception to the search warrant rule. There is the um, inventory rule. There is the uh, you can do a pat frisk of a car as part of a Terry stop, or you can also do a search into an arrest of a car if it's a arrest of somebody who's who's in or near the car recently. And um, I don't get into any of that here. Um, and the reason is because that's the Commonwealth's problem. Um, I have to establish that the police invaded or some state actor invaded my client's rights. I've done that. Um, and then it's the Commonwealth's job to justify that search. And, and Amanda's gonna talk more about burdens recently, but this is one where I have, I have a small burden at the beginning and that's just to show a search somehow related to my client uh, that they have standing to contest it. And then, um, then the burden shifts to the Commonwealth to justify it. And so um, they can come up with whatever justifications they are going to do. I want to anticipate those. I don't want to prepare for them. I'm not going to raise them um, because they might miss some of them. Um, and so I'm not going to do their work for them. Um, and then finally, last, I do have a request for an evidentiary hearing. And sometimes you'll want um, potentially additional time to brief issues that arise at the hearing, though, especially in district court, different judges have different ideas about whether they're going to give you that time. Uh, oh, yeah. So. <laughs> Um, so here's an affidavit um, of uh, Jane Defendant um, that is in support of the same motion you just saw. So um, we talked about the affidavit requirement. And again, it's, it's pretty basic. You just have to establish um, the same kind of things. So if we can go through that one too, um, you know, the police stopped me and arrested me. Pretty basic. Um, the, uh, that's establishing the, um, the sort of seizure part of it. You notice I didn't say detained um this is again this is a real motion i maybe if i've been really precise i would have said stop detained and arrested me um i would argue that that's implicit in you know in between a stop and arrest and i've already put the commonwealth on notice by mentioning the word detained uh in the motion itself um this is one i could easily amend if it became an issue but um i uh uh you know is that actually necessary to say it in either one i don't know i like to say it um ideally just to be a little bit clear, but um, again, different lawyers are going to have different approaches to that. Um, so now here, the sort of what had been ground two is now kind of split up into two paragraphs. Again, there's no rule about how you split these up or don't, you just have to get the facts in there. Um, and so, um, you know, they searched me, they claimed to have found money in a cigarette box. So that's the search of the person. And then the fourth one is claimed to have searched the cigarette box and found drugs. So that's the search of the container. Um, that's technically a separate legal issue. Um, and here it does have a separate paragraph before it didn't, um, you know, you just have to get it in there. Um, and then here's the car search. Um, 
And then I usually put in a one that says, you know, they did not show me a warrant. Um, and um, again, I actually don't 100% know if that's necessary, but I think, you know, you're claiming a warrantless search. It's a good idea just to put that in there. Um, and then I usually do put um, a, uh, you know, just solely prepared to the purpose of the motion and not intended to cover every detail. Um, and that's kind of obvious, but um, again, because potentially these, they, they can't be used, as Amanda said, they can't be used in the case in chief, um, but they can potentially be used to impeach your client down the road if your client does testify at trial. Um, so it's not an admission in the sense of um, it's substantive evidence against your client, but if your client testifies otherwise, they can use it. And so I like to put in something in there that if that becomes an issue, um, you can always say, uh, well, you know, isn't it true that the, the affidavit also says that it's not covering every detail? Um, and so. So this is an example of an affidavit that was filed and the Commonwealth made an argument that it was insufficient um, as it didn't state the search that resulted in a seizure. Um, and the Commonwealth was successful with the judge that this went in front of in having the affidavit amended. It was actually a situation in which the item um, that was ultimately seized um, and for which the defendant was charged was not found on his person, um, wasn't found in property that belonged to him to which he really had any control over expectation of privacy, all those various issues that will come up and that we'll discuss a little bit um, later. It was found. Um, and so, it, you know, he's charged with the possessory offense. There's the automatic standing, but he's got no real expectation of privacy, which isn't an, an issue for the automatic standing. But you know, these are nuances that you get into when you talk about automatic standing, expectation of privacy, et cetera. Um, and so the Commonwealth said to the judge that the affidavit was insufficient uh, because it had simply stated that officers chased the defendant, stopped him and searched his person, but nothing was found on him. Um, and it didn't state anything with respect to the item that was seized, where it was seized. Um, and obviously the strategy for that from the defense side was trying to not put something in the affidavit that connected the defendant to that item, but it was insufficient according to the judge. And so it had to be amended to include that, as you can see the handwritten portion, they subsequently searched the area in which they stopped the defendant, um, gave the address and found an item, a firearm, um, and references some other um, additions that were made. Jeff and I didn't have an opportunity to really discuss this. I, you know, looking back from my defense days, I see where he's coming from. I can see where the prosecution is coming from. Absolutely. Um, the addition of number four with where, you know, the area that was searched and the item that was seized needed to be added. The other ones, it's going to depend. Um, the Commonwealth made the argument uh, with respect to each item in the affidavit and with respect to each statement. Um, and the judge agreed with the Commonwealth. So each of those statements um, had to be amended and it's going to depend who you're in front of, um, which judge, what their position is, um, you know, how they feel based on the law, whether or not the statements that are being challenged are sufficient. And you have a decision to make whether to amend it, um, depending on the decision of the judge. If it seems like it's something so egregious, obviously then that's a different situation that you could try to take up quickly. Um, but in this instance, it, it did need to be um, included. And so it was amended to include that item that was seized from a particular area having nothing to do with the defendant. 
Um, and actually, we can go back to this for a second. I just um, just had my own comments. I thought Amanda brought this up, and I thought it was a really interesting example of of um, yeah, how I you know I I agree with her and the judge. I think that paragraph four, that new paragraph four, if you're going to have a, this, it sounds like it's sort of a tossed gun type case. Um, and so if you're going to have a motion where you're claiming that the tossed gun was sort of a result of some sort of search and seizure, um, then I think you do need to put that in the affidavit. Um, it does sometimes get interesting because sometimes your client will say like, I didn't see the police find any gun. Um, and so that's what, you know, the allegedly I think is, is good. I, you know, I think I use claims in mind to have found things. Clients may not want to admit to, to what the police actually found. Um, as, that's, I've never had a problem with claims or allegedly, um, as long as you're talking about what, um, what the police actually found. Um, if, if your client's like, that wasn't me, they stopped, uh, that can create bigger problems. Because um, I think you do have to establish that it was actually their privacy that was somehow, or their, their rights that were somehow invaded. Um, as I actually read this, I see the, like that seven, the, the one that was six and is now seven, I actually don't um, see that as being necessary myself, um, but different people are gonna have different ideas about this. Um, I, I view sort of timing issues as being, um, as being kind of things that are developed at the hearing. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's also a good example though. Sometimes you're, you have a judge who disagrees, they're the one calling the shots. And, um, so, um, you know, the good news is you usually don't have to panic. You can, you usually do get a chance to amend it and you can do that. And so don't, don't freak out if, if someone you're, you show up for the day of the hearing and someone's contesting the, the, uh, sufficiency of your affidavit, you can still go ahead and, and fix it on the spot as you need to. And I'm just going to, sorry, say one quick thing to that, Jeff. So that goes back to when Jeff didn't include the detained portion in the previous affidavit example that he gave. So this is an instance where I kind of left it ambiguous and the prosecutor said, well, it essentially went to a detention and wanted to be able to um, draw out what she needed to, to meet her burden on that issue. And so argued to the judge that it needed to be more specific with respect to that. And that is how that ultimately came to be. So, it, you know, there, there can be a lot of back and forth before you even get to the motion phase. Just remember that. Um, sometimes you need to write a memorandum. And so rule 13, you can see there, um, it, uh, all motions to suppress except for, um, you know, ones contesting evidence seized during a warrantless search. So it's kind of all motions to suppress, uh, require a memorandum except for actually most motions to suppress because uh, those are the biggest, the warrantless searches and seizures are definitely the biggest uh, volume of motions. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes you may want to file a memo anyways. Um, there are also, you know, it says at the end, except when otherwise ordered by the judge or special magistrate, sometimes judges will require you to file a memo whether the rule does or not. Um, and so um, be prepared again, you know, you may not want to give away too much of the details of your claim. Um, but some cases you may want to be upfront about it. You think the evidence isn't going to change much, or you think the it's a complicated legal issue. You don't think the judge is going to read anything afterwards, and so you want to get that in front of them. It's tactical considerations. Um, you know, here is the absolute bare minimum, I think, of a memorandum you could write. This is a, a Miranda uh, statements and voluntariness motion. Um, so, you know, this is, I need something that's, that's you know, it's not a warrantless search and seizure part of it. So I need something to meet the memorandum requirement, but this is one where I don't want to 
show my cards ahead of time. So really, um, the burden is on them to prove voluntariness. So I'm basically just writing a paragraph. I have some sources of authority, uh, constitutional sources of authority. Then I have the um, case to cite. I have say that it's their burden uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And then I just say they're not going to meet their burden. Um, yeah, I, I think even if you're going full boilerplate, I actually think, um, again, that was a real paragraph from the memo I filed, but I think, I think a better practice actually would be to add a little bit more, some case sites about certain factors and things like that, um, just so um, you are priming the judge a little bit, but um, that's a tactical call. Some cases, you really may actually want to get everything in the memo again. Um, you know, for instance, for, if we're talking about a statements motion, sometimes you have like a recorded statement. And so, um, yeah, there might be testimony about what happened before and what happened after, um, but um, you know, 90% of it's just going to be the recording. So maybe you actually front load your memo because um, you want the judge to really read it ahead of time and not rush through it afterwards. Um, but other times, um, you may have a chance to write a memo afterwards, or um, you know, even even for recorded statements, um, sometimes the key stuff is is actually what happened before, and you may not know how the evidence is going to come. You may have a police report, but you may not actually know um, what the police are going to rely on. So I I have had motions where um, we've been ordered to file briefing, and then um, the police officer suddenly remembers something that never was in the report that happens to solve all the problems for the Commonwealth and is not mentioned in either side's briefing. Uh, and so that's end up what you're arguing and um, hoping you get a judge who is uh, also bothered by that, um, though oftentimes judges will, will just go for that and, and credit it anyways. Um, and like I said, you can sometimes um, ask for chances to brief it. Um, this depends, your district court, again, a lot of times district court is very, um, uh, you know, things are moving quick, judges will want to rule from the bench um, and get to know your judges. Um, some judges will always uh, take some time and think about it and read cases and then issue a written decision. Some judges always want to rule for the bench. Um, so be prepared to argue it fully no matter what, because um, there will be oral argument um, no matter what, what, even if you're filing a post-hearing memo. And um, uh, you sometimes also can bring a memo that you have pre-written but um, that you uh, don't want to file until after the hearing, until you see how the evidence comes in. And you can sometimes also then, that sort of gives you a, a angle, you know, sometimes even judges that want to rule right from the bench, you can say, this case is different, judge. I know um, there are you know, these two really complicated issues and these were not fully briefed in this memo because um, I didn't anticipate them and the evidence turned out different. So I do want a chance to brief these two issues briefly, and then you can get a little time for that, maybe. So we've touched a lot on the, the defendant's burden, and it's it's clear now, and everyone knows or is learning, that the initial burden starts with the defendant um, to show that a search and seizure occurred, and in certain instances, standing where there is an automatic standing. Um, so, you know, an example of that maybe is a distribution case where the defendant's not charged with a possessory offense, so there's no automatic standing, um, and they have to um, demonstrate that they have standing to challenge what's being, what has been um, seized, uh, and then move on to the expectation of privacy. And once that happens, the, the burden falls on the Commonwealth, um, and obviously it, it's a greater burden is now much more is needed to meet that burden. 
Um, so in terms of suppressing evidence without a warrant, um, as I said, it starts with the defendant. Um, there's a case law referenced here in terms of um, what uh, the defendant has to establish. Mumdi, Mumdi also um, sets it forth very well, several cases, tons of case law out there. Um, in terms of statements, the defendant has to establish that a custodial interrogation occurred. So custodial simply meaning that um, the defendant was not free to leave an interrogation that um, the state actors who were engaging in this conversation either put questions forth to the defendant or elicited, um, made statements to the defendant or suspect um, that were likely to elicit an incriminating response. Um, in terms of, sorry, there was noise outside my office. Uh, the burden then shifts to the Commonwealth. Um, and so in terms of a motion to suppress evidence, uh, they have to show um, that the search and seizure fell within exceptions to the warrant requirement. And so I give you examples um, of those exceptions, which include, uh, but are not limited to, as there's lots of them out there, exigent circumstances. And so examples of that are, um, is there a possibility that the evidence could be destroyed before you know, they could get a search warrant? Um, is there a safety issue that's posed by not recovering the evidence now, like in terms of, of weapons, firearms, et cetera? Um, is the evidence in plain view? So is the officer right then and there able to readily see um, the evidence? Has someone with authority and control over the place being searched given consent to search it? Um, has the property been abandoned? So is it a car chase and someone throws something out of the car or a foot chase and something um, the suspect throws something from their person? Um, is it a search incident to arrest? So was there probable cause to arrest the defendant and the search is now simply incident to that. Um, and then an inventory search is another one that commonly comes up. As Jeff said, motor vehicle cases happen um, frequently um, in district court. And if there is reason for that car to be towed, um, then there will be an inventory search that needs to occur um, that covers everything within the vehicle. Um, and so that is an exception to the warrant requirement. Um, in terms of statements, the Commonwealth has to show that Miranda was complied with and that it was waived. So the suspect made a knowing and voluntary waiver of that. Um, so in instances like that, you want to have the officer ready with either they just know from memory what the Miranda is um, and can recite it right then and there on the stand, or they carry a card with them that they read from. They've got it with them that day for the motion hearing and they um, read directly from it during testimony or in cases where an interview has been conducted at a station, you have the Miranda form um, that lays out everything that the defendant was advised of, checked off, and then initialed and signed. You want, that, um, you want those things being introduced to show that the officers either recited, read uh, Miranda to the defendant or presented them with that form, went through everything, and that the defendant um, knowingly and voluntarily waived so was it clearly there were indicators that they understood, you know, was this someone who spoke English or if not someone spoke another language, but there was an interpreter present? Um, were they shaking their head yes in acknowledgement of each one? Did they initial it? Is it clear from a recorded interview that was video recorded um, that you can see the defendant um, nodding in acknowledgement, yes, I understand, or verbalizing, yes, I understand this, you know, this right, I understand this right, um, and then signed it and said, yes, I will still go ahead and talk to you. For motions to suppress ID, 
um, the burden primarily and almost always stays with, rises with and stays with the defendant. Um, it is on the defendant to show by a preponderance of the evidence that the ID was unnecessarily suggestive. So Jeff has referenced a few, but um, a photo array where the defendant really, the suspect really stands out and there's just no option for the witness to pick anyone other than that person. Um, they, uh, defense has to show that it was unnecessarily suggestive and that burden does not shift um, unless the, the original identification gets suppressed. Um, so they've met their burden and they've shown that it was um, unnecessarily suggestive. So like that photo array example, another example is in a photo array, um, a detective showing the witness um, four of the eight photos and then stopping once an identification is made. Um, they need to go through all of those photos. And if they don't, um, that in all likelihood would rule the identification inadmissible. If the Commonwealth then wants the opportunity and tries to seek to introduce a subsequent identification, the burden is on the Commonwealth to show by clear and convincing evidence that the subsequent identification has a source um, independent of that original suggestive ID. Um, so there are several factors that the court's gonna take into consideration when they're looking for uh, these independent sources, such as a witness's opportunity to view the suspect, the witness's degree um, of attention. So is this a situation where the suspect came up from behind the witness and it was only a few seconds, there was really no opportunity to view and they couldn't pay any attention to what the person looked like or were they face on looking at each other um, for even a minute. I mean, when you put that out to time, 60 seconds and you count that out, that's actually sometimes in some instances a good amount of time to look at somebody. Um, was there accuracy from the prior description um, from the witness? Uh, what was the witness's level of certainty um, with respect to the identification of their description of this individual? Um, and what is the length of time between the original crime, the original incident, and now this subsequent identification, this confrontation that you're looking to try to introduce. Um, so there's a case out there that gives, uh, if you can go back one second, Laura, um, there's um, a case out there, uh, the Johnson case that I cite, um, where there was an independent source because they said the witness got a good look at the suspect um, and the initial description that the witness gave matched the description of the, the defendant. So the court could conclude that there was an independent source and, and admit a subsequent identification. Practical things to consider, and this comes up quite a lot with respect to motions to suppress identification is who summons as the witnesses because if it's the defendant's burden, really the requirement shouldn't be on the Commonwealth to summon those witnesses. However, it can often be very difficult for defense to secure witness presence, particularly if it's police presence by their summonses. And so be aware that a judge may very well say, you know, if defense has sent summonses and you've had one or two motion dates and they're not responding to those summonses, a judge may very well say, well, the case certainly can't move forward without doing this hearing and say, Commonwealth, we're asking you to summon your witnesses. Um, then it becomes a question of, okay, who calls those witnesses and introduces the testimony and evidence? Um, and so it, it, that, that's practical tips in terms of feeling out the court and what the judges prefer. Um, I think, I don't know, Jeff, I'll let you chime in, but I think just about any motion to suppress identification I've ever done, um, the Commonwealth has actually started um, with taking testimony and evidence. 
Um, so it's something to be discussed with the judge. You know, if, if it's a situation where the Commonwealth really wants the burden to be on defense, then you address that with the court and wait to see what the orders of the judge are. Next slide, please, Laura. So um, in terms of standing and who has standing um, to challenge a search and seizure, a defendant has to satisfy uh, three prerequisites. Um, so first it has to be that the search and seizure involved governmental action, so state action, um, which means either police action, um, sworn personnel and those acting in concert with them. Um, so things that come up is if you have a teacher who searches a locker of a student in the school, um, if there's no police involvement in that, that's not a state actor. Um, but if they've contacted the police ahead of time, and maybe if the police aren't even present, but the police have guided them and suggested or told them, you need to go and search that, that locker, that can be contested um, as a state actor. And, and a court may very well find that um, that is state action for the purpose of the, the defendant satisfying that, that first prerequisite. Um, the next is that the defendant was present and or had a substantial possessory interest in the place searched or the item seized. Um, it, there's a case there that cited gives an example where um, a defendant was charged with conspiracy, so not an automatic standing situation because it's a non-possessory offense um, and did not have an expectation privacy in the search of their co-defendant. So two people um, who the Commonwealth believes are acting in concert with each other, one has the drugs for the purpose of possession with intent or the purpose of a distribution, the other doesn't. But the evidence that's been gathered shows they were working together. Um, that individual really has has no standing to challenge the search of the the co-defendant and the drugs that were recovered and intended to be used against that defendant down the road at a trial. Uh, the last is that the defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the place to be searched, um, and this plays on the nature of the place where the government action um, activity occurred. Um, and so things to be considered are whether the defendant owned, um, you know, was this a home or, or apartment? Um, and so obviously they have an expectation of privacy in it, um, a vehicle, but is it a vehicle owned by them as opposed to a vehicle they're simply traveling in? Um, these are all things that play into an expectation of privacy um, and also whether the defendant has taken normal precautions to protect his or her privacy. Um, automatic standing, which you've heard referred to a lot, is when a defendant is charged with an offense in which possession is an essential element, they have automatic standing to challenge that search and seizure. Um, they do not need to have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, and so probably nine times out of 10, um, or at least eight out of 10, you know, 70, 80% of these cases, they're charged with that possessory offense. Um, and so they have automatic standing. Expectation of privacy um, is what we just discussed in terms of, you know, what is that defendant able to establish um, with respect to their expectation of privacy in the place that was searched? Um, like I just said, some obvious examples are a person's home, um, a car that belongs to that person, um, but there are tons of, of nuances that go into it and whether or not a person actually has um, 
an expectation of privacy in the place that was searched. Um, I'm not going to have an expectation of privacy in Jeff's car um, if I'm in that car and I get arrested for something and something is seized from that vehicle. Um, I, I can, and, and from the defense, I wouldn't want to establish any connection to the car, uh, but I also have no expectation of privacy in it. Um, there's a case out there, Commonwealth v. DeJesus. I hadn't included it in this, um, but it is a, an interesting case. And I believe it's actually, I believe it's only appellate court, but um, it's an example of, and this comes up now more, uh, much more than it used to where um, officers had the opportunity to observe Snapchat videos and the defendant was posing with a firearm. So they ultimately searched the basement um, of a family home that was depicted in the videos. And the defendant, a firearm was found and the defendant was ultimately charged with possession of it, but he never had, he, he didn't have actual or constructive possession at the time of the, the search. Um, and so the court actually said that automatic standing did not apply and found that the defendant didn't meet the burden of demonstrating that to challenge the search. Um, but that the defendant also couldn't establish that he or someone else had an expectation of privacy in the place to be searched. So you really have to think closely about, okay, um, what's the defendant charged with automatic standing? Okay, but where was the item at the time of the, the search and seizure that occurred? Um, and what is the, the defendant's expectation of privacy from the, the prosecution side? You have to really dive deep into this um, in terms of the evidence that you're going to elicit um, to be able to adequately express that there was not an expectation of privacy. Um, so you need details with respect to the, the place that was searched, who does it belong to, whose control was it in, things like that. Um, this slide gives you examples um, of things that for newer attorneys you might not think of like a backpack hidden in a friend's bush uh, without establishing it was placed in someone else's control failed to evoke the expectation. Um, but an homeless individual who obviously does not really doesn't own a, a residence or anywhere else, um, who left a bag recently on the roadside has an expectation of privacy in those bags. Um, and even a situation where a defendant continued to have an expectation of privacy in a backpack and shopping bag that, that the defendant had left in another person's apartment uh, where they had been staying, even though that person gave consent to search um, and the fact that the defendant was no longer welcome in the home, um, that person was still given, um, the court still found that there was an expectation of privacy and that's a more expansive view. Following up on Amanda's, I uh, was saying, you know, the, the burden and expectation of privacy stuff gets complicated. I mean, Amanda mentioned like, um, you know, someone else's car, like if you are a passenger, you are, you do have certain rights with respect to someone else's car, may not have others. Um, and you, if you're not a passenger, you may not have any rights at all, but it depends. Um, and um, be, uh, um, you know, be prepared think of these things ahead of time, especially when you're writing your motion, because the burden stuff, you could have one claim where the burden could shift several different times just dealing with that claim. So for instance, you might have a situation where you have um, the you know, police, you're, you have burden to show that the police did a warrantless search and seizure of your client, 
um, then the Commonwealth is trying to having the burden of proving that that was justified. Um, and if they don't, then maybe you have the burden of proving something else was caused by that, and they can have the proof, the burden of proof of trying to argue that, that was actually yes, it was caused by it, but it was attenuated by the time that that happened, so it was constitutional after all, or not not suppressible after all. Um, so um, think these through ahead of times, um, and so. Um, uh, so uh, as far as um, things to think about as you are preparing these, you know, the first bit of advice is to prepare early. And so, um, you know, discuss everything with your client, um, if not at arraignment, as soon as you can afterwards, because sometimes you get a police report where they say, you know, um, we searched, you know, he, he dropped this gun on the ground or he dropped these drugs on the ground. And the client says, he didn't, I didn't drop the drugs. They reached into my pants and pulled them out. And that's a very different motion to suppress. And there might be evidence, you know, witnesses who might disappear or video that might get written over that you want to get right away for that. So you can know, don't just rely on the police report. Um, and similarly, you know, do your legal research before you write your motion and affidavit. The downside of, um, you know, it's great in some ways that the motion and affidavit can be very simple, but the downside of that is it's very easy to file a boilerplate motion. And, you know, on such and such a date, the police searched my client, they seized him, they uh, didn't have probable cause, the end. And then, you know, you're prepping it the day before the hearing and you realize, oh, huh, I kind of missed this issue or like a container issue or some like nuances that, that might, um, you might have missed. And then you're trying to amend it the day of and it's a mess. Um, uh, so, you know, even if it's a basic motion, you still want to put some work in before you actually write it and file it. Um, and you want to go over the affidavit with your client um, and ideally get signed. Sometimes you're signing it the, the day of the hearing if they're, you know, um, they live out of state or something, or sometimes it's hard, you know, they're in some facility, it's hard to get to. Um, but um, especially these days, um, but um, uh, you do, and sometimes you know, sometimes it's hard to just get in touch with your clients. So I, you know, have I had motions where I'm, I'm just kind of guessing what um, they would say? Yes, it's really not ideal, um, and you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're like showing up to the hearing and you're like crossing out the line that said the police did not waive me my Miranda rights or read me my Miranda rights because the client's like, yeah, no, they actually did. Um, so don't um, don't wait to the hearing. And so that means, especially with a client who's hard to get a hold of, you might want to talk about you know, grab them at a court date before the hearing when we're actually in court again, um, and you know go over it then instead of even if you don't have to file it until later, just to make sure um, while you have them you can go over this. Um, and then of course you have to file the motion affidavit. You have to serve it on the prosecutor. Um, district court that tends to be two weeks beforehand, um, and sometimes the memo can be filed. Um, later, and um, uh, it depends on the type of motion, the local court practice, um, and uh, you know, again, if you have to file a motion, uh, if you have to file a memo, or you want to file a memo, um, that's you know, next step. Um, again, summons witnesses you want. If the burden is on you, it is on you to summons them. Though, as Amanda mentioned, it can sometimes be hard to do that. Um, so police officers are not always responsive to defense summonses. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they don't. Um, but um, even where it's the burden on the, the prosecution, I always say summons them anyways, because um, the prosecutor may have a different idea of which officers they want for the hearing. Um, and um, even if you, um, 
even if you even if they don't respond to your motion, at least if you have a return your your summons, at least you have a, a return for the summons that you can say, you know, look, I did summons this officer. I'm sorry, you know, I need to get a continuance. That looks different from you're asking a continuance because an officer was there that you're just like, oh, I, I would rather have this officer there. That looks not so great. Um, and you can arrange with a prosecutor, you know, sometimes to try to make sure that they, you know, you can say, who are you summonsing? And, you know, I would also like you to summons this officer from their end because they're going to be, the officers are tend to be more responsive to prosecutor summons, but sometimes not even to prosecutor summonses, uh, depending on the officer. Um, and then obviously, if you have any witnesses, you're going to testify from your end, you want to prep them, including your client, especially, you never want to have a client unprepped. Um, and you want to then, of course, do the hearing. Uh, if you do a follow-up memo, if it's allowed, um, you do that. And then potentially, if you lose, um, you may want to do an interlocutory appeal if it makes sense in your case. I just want to warn you, we're at we're a little over um, an hour, but also we have some questions. So I don't know. I know this is the last slide, but um, I didn't know if either of you, the, the most recent question we got was um, basically, can you challenge a, a warrant? Um, and what is the standard um, that must be met to challenge, um, excuse me, what is the standard that must be met for the judge to issue a warrant? So I can speak, to, I, this would not typically be an evidentiary hearing, correct? Because you'd be challenging it on um, whether or not there's probable cause to issue the warrant. Correct. So it, um, normally a, a motion to suppress a search warrant, as Laura just said, would not be an evidentiary hearing. Um, but it may be required based on certain challenges that defense is bringing. Uh, so probable cause is needed to get a warrant. I believe that was one of the questions. Um, probable cause is needed to get a warrant. Um, and in terms of a challenge, one challenge that may require an evidentiary hearing is Frank's and Amaral hearings. So essentially defense is saying that there's some sort of um, material misrepresentation or there was uh, the officer was dishonest in the affidavit that was submitted in support of the application for warrant. Um, one really common example that comes up is with respect to confidential informants. Um, you know, they provide information as to the confidential informant and for whatever reason, defense um, now feels that maybe there's something awry. Um, this isn't a real informant um, or this is an informant that's been used in the, in the past. Um, and so there's no veracity. So they begin to challenge that. They start to ask for materials with respect to the um, confidential informant if they're successful in that first um, request and the court orders it and, and materials are then gotten with respect to the informant. Um, if there's a discovery that maybe there was a misrepresentation as to that informant, whether it was, you know, their basis of knowledge or um, their veracity, then there may be a need to have a hearing with the officer who wrote the affidavit um, as to why, how that misrepresentation came to be. So that's one type of evidentiary hearing that can come during a, a motion to suppress a, a search warrant. Um, the other is if the defendant is claiming that the seizure of certain items went outside the scope of the, um, the warrant and then the Commonwealth just has to show that there was, um, the seizure was legal. And so that's again, by exceptions um, to warrantless search. So plain view, exigent circumstances, et cetera. Um, and then there was one more question. I don't know if you, either of you saw it, but I'll read it. Um, um, do you want to address that? As, uh, do you want me to read it or do you want to address it? I, I can address it to some extent and I'll let Jeff do it. But yes, um, 
evolutions in technology are definitely impacting um, motions. You heard me reference Snapchat. And I'm that's hold on, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm not sure everyone can see the question. So let me just read it and then you can okay. answer. Um, it, the question was, do you find yourself having to argue new evolutions in technology that case law lacks in explaining, but is being used as evidence to prove guilt, such as maybe social media posts or some new novel technology, which is different from the evidence that has been traditionally used in court? Um, and how do you come across arguing this? Go ahead. I can think of one quick example. Um, Snapchat videos um, have become a very hot topic as they're used by police um, to investigate the activity of individuals they believe to be involved with firearms, gang activity, et cetera. Um, and there was, when this originated, there really was no case law um, definitively addressing it. And the arguments were, okay, well, that's a private platform, um, but the police are using it under the guise of somebody else that this person is friending. Okay, if they're friending that person, are they consenting, even though they don't really know, you know, is there consent because they don't know who this person is? Or, um, you know, is there a lack of consent issue because they're, they're just friending whoever they want? And then of course, um, with social media platforms that people put out for public consumption, um, at least from the Commonwealth perspective, if you're not, you know, it's, that's a privacy issue. If you're not taking measures to protect your privacy, um, then it's free access and, and we get to use it. So um, this is very much an evolving situation, um, especially when it comes to social media and digital, digital evidence. Um. Jeff, did you want to address that or there's- That's right, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't have a lot to, I think Amanda okay. answered it well, but um, but certainly, you know, um, be creative and and think about these issues because there are some things that you may not even necessarily be thinking about um, because um, it's new and it's not, you know, something that's in the law books, but somebody has to make that law. Yeah. And, uh, so you could be the one. Um, also, there was one question that I actually typed an answer to, but I wanted to see if either of you had anything else to add. It was, um, if the defendant does not satisfy one of the three prerequisites, does the Commonwealth file a written motion slash memo in opposition or orally object to the defendant's request to have an evidentiary motion heard? And I responded by saying that typically it would just be an oral um, objection. That's was my experience, at least in district court. But I wanted to check with you two and see if anything has changed since it's been Mm, like 11 years <laughs> since I've been in district court. <laughs> I'd agree with that answer. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I think you said, judges always appreciate writing when you can do that, but that's you may not have the bandwidth for that. I think if you if you saw a problem in an affidavit, you a prosecutor saw a problem in an affidavit or motion um, early enough that you could flag it for the defense. I think it would be nice and best practice to flag it for the defense. Um, because it might be the kind of thing that, you know, instead of you writing some memo or something, you could say, hey, I take the position that your affidavit isn't sufficient in paragraph three and four. Or sometimes you may want clarification um, to say, um, you know, just to be clear, you're just challenging the search of the person, right? That's, that's all you're challenging, search the person. Um, and yeah, defense lawyer has the right also to say, I stand on my, mo my motion, we can litigate that. Um, you know, what, what from a defense point of view you want to do, because um, you may disagree, you may think it's sufficient, you may not want to give it away. Um, but I think if, um, if they're saying, you know, 
we're challenging just the search of the person and you say, I'm not answering that question. And then it comes to the hearing and you're not, you're challenging more than that. And it's not clear from the papers. Um, I think that's gonna put you in a worse position. So, um, but yeah, I, I would encourage people to try to work that out ahead of time. If they I'd can. say actually just a good practice tip in general is if you have a question about something or you're not sure, it's always good if you can um, to reach out to the other side, the defense attorney. Um, ahead of time just to see what they're really thinking. Um, and if you can work something out beforehand, I think that, that it, it goes a long way in fostering good relationships with everyone at court and the opposing side. And I think that that um, goes back to sort of reputation, which is the most important thing that you have in this profession. So, um, you know, and it's good to be friends with, with defense attorneys in my opinion. <laughs> so um, yeah, I agree with, with you, Jeff, on that. So if there are no other questions, I don't see any. Um, I guess we can stop. <laughs> Thank you, you guys so much. If, if people want to keep going, I don't know how, Alan, how are we looking? We do have a few more slides. I think Amanda had a, a prosecution checklist too. I don't know. If are I'm... there? Oh, I didn't, it's not going to that. Hold on, let me see. Oh, sorry. It wasn't working before. Keep going then. I apologize. <laughs> Whoops, I was saying that was fine. I'll keep it brief. Um, I think the biggest thing to be mindful of is you want to make sure that you're reviewing everything. It's not all contained in that police report. Um, so if there are recorded communications between the officers, you want to listen to those ahead of time. Um, if there's additional reports, supplementals, form 26s, um, written by anyone that you're going to have testifying, you need to make sure you've reviewed those. Um, like Jeff said, if it's an evidentiary motion where experts are going to testify, um, you want to know resumes and CVs. You need to expand. The Commonwealth's burden is so big, you need to expand on everything. So if it's a drug case, you know, all the training and experience you can possibly get out on drug transactions and observations of them in every shape and manner. Um, you don't want to be exhaustive and you don't want to drive the judge crazy by um, going too far, but you, you want to be able to um, expand on everything that you can. So you're presenting the evidence that's going to support your argument. Um, and that's what part of that goes to what Laura said, which is, you know, if there's a question, reach out to defense counsel and, and be clear on the issues. Um, they may not be willing to share everything, um, but, it, you know, if, if they can give you a good idea, then you know who to summons, you know what you're going to focus on with them. You want to have all your um, exhibits ready to go for so for inventory searches of motor vehicles the inventory policy you're going to need to um, put that in if it was a booking search a copy of the booking policy um, and you want to um, research and prep your arguments you know make that outline of the things that you want to touch on the case law that supports it and so then you've got your argument your facts that support it and the case law that supports that um, I think that's probably the crux of that and then for the hearing itself, um, Amanda talked already a little bit about this, so I won't go too long, but um, you know, it's a little bit like uh, a mini bench trial. Um, and so um, some judges will ask for opening summaries, um, many won't. Um, then whichever side uh, either you know, has the burden or if you've worked out some other arrangement, um, that the, some, like Amanda said, some of the prosecution just goes first anyways, because they're used to it, um, will, uh, Call its witnesses. Then the other side, you know, calls their witnesses. Then argument, um, and you know, as a defense lawyer, be 
thoughtful about who you actually want to go first, because sometimes you may want the prosecution to go first. Um, and then you can see what they put out there and then you can cross examine, you get to lead uh, for cross examination. Um, and you have some more flexibility of questioning, but you may also want to take control of the narrative from the start and um, direct the witness to begin. Um, and then also think about whether you want a decision, you know, judges are going to do what they're going to do 90% of the time, but sometimes, you know, you might have a judge who is inclined to rule from the bench that you really do want to say, hey, let's, uh, I, I do want to brief this one issue or, you know, do need to really look at these cases and um, other times um, uh, you may actually just be happy from the judge ruling from the bench and, um, you know, because sometimes some sometimes judges uh, may be better if they're uh, winging it a little bit uh, in either direction and maybe that's good for you. Um, the losing side uh, can seek interlocutory appeal, meaning um, before trial, before final judgment, um, and either side can do it. Commonwealth has to do it because they, they can't appeal from a, a loss at trial, obviously. Um, and it's not automatic, though, so that you have to get it signed off from a single justice of the SJC. Um, Rule 15 talks all about it. There's a great standing order that goes into all the details of it. Um, from the defense side, you need to think about um, there's a lot of strategic questions. If you have a great trial, just try the thing uh, in the first place, um, especially if your guy's not looking at probation. You know, if your guy's looking at probation afterwards, um, try the thing. If your client is out of custody, but is likely to go into custody, um, then the, the calculation looks a little bit different. Um, if you, you know, if you lose a trial um, and if you're, if it's going to be a plea um, and you want to get an offer that's on the table. That used to be a good reason for a interlocutory appeal. Um, sometimes it can be, but um, you now can do a conditional plea if the prosecutor and the judge sign off. Um, so um, you don't have to do an interlocutory appeal. You can um, plea, get the benefit of any breakdown um, in the offer, whatever, and then um, still ask to preserve your client's rights. But that doesn't, you know, be aware that the prosecution and the judge may not sign off on that. And so from the defense side, these motions can look different depending on whether your goal is, do you think you have a winnable motion or whether you're just you're just taking a stab at it because you can. Um, and so um, you, um, some motions you're doing a little bit of both, but, but every motion somewhere kind of on that spectrum of how successful you think it's likely to be. And that affects your strategy. So if you're playing to win, um, it's kind of like a trial. You want to keep things tight. You ask questions. Um, you know, you summons the helpful witnesses, not the the harmful ones, unless that's kind of all you got. Um, and uh, you only ask the questions you think will be hard, helpful. Ask the questions you know the answer to already, unless you have to uh, ask. You know, take a take a shot at something. But um, you know, you want to keep things pretty tight, and you just you're shooting to win. Sometimes you might have a, a long shot of a motion and you're just doing it as sort of a Hail Mary and um, you can summons everybody, uh, all the officers who are there, potentially may not call them all, but you may sort of want to see how things go. Um, somebody may give you something helpful for the motion um, that you didn't expect. Um, but other times you may just, you know, even if every single question has a terrible answer for you for the motion, you still are glad to know that for the trial um, because that's going to be helpful that you've got a chance to uh, cross-examine officers on the stand um, under oath that otherwise you wouldn't have had until the trial when the stakes are a lot higher. Um, and so um, 
you know, but still, e even for long shot motions, you never know, especially in district court, because the prosecutor may miss an important thing. Um, the judge may mi mix up their findings in some way that creates a uh, viable motion out of what you thought was not going to be viable. And so in response to Jeff's Hail Mary, uh, or some other strategies of the defense, um, strategy of the prosecution is fairly simple and straightforward. You want to stick to the issues being argued um, and be sure to make objections that are going to limit defense counsel to this as well. Um, you know, this, these are motions to suppress primarily um, or evidentiary motions that are specific to one, two, maybe three issues. Um, they're fairly tailored, um, really pretty specific. So there's no reason that it should be um, going beyond the scope of that. So you want to do everything you can to prevent it from, from becoming a, a fishing expedition for um, discovery, for trial, et cetera. Um, because this is testimony that a, a witness is gonna be locked into. Um, and witnesses are only human and, and may make mistakes, but those little inconsistencies that could come up down the road for whatever reason, even though it's really not a big deal and more of a smoke and mirrors could still blow up in your face and make a jury say, oh, I don't find that person credible because they said this on this date and this on that date. And, you know, it could be the car was blue, the car was red. And yet for whatever reason that causes a juror to say, I don't believe them. Um, and so for the same reasons you want to object to witnesses, questions, testimony, et cetera, um, that aren't relevant to the motion. Um, and obviously, depending on your judge, you may be very successful in keeping, uh, keeping it from becoming that, that hearing that turns into something other than a motion, evidentiary motion specific to the issue being argued. Uh, and so we were doing these slide decks and uh, we were sort of responding to each other a little bit. Um, uh, you know, Amanda's right and, and prosecutors are gonna raise these objections. And so you should be prepared as a defense lawyer because a lot of things that, that um, you know, are relevant for the motion to suppress or, or relevant for trial, which maybe you, your actual goal are still relevant for motions to suppress. So, you know, what did people see? How did they see it? Could they have seen it? Who else was there? Anytime issues with their bias or credibility, um, their credibility is on the line at the motion just as it is at the hearing. Um, so all those things can be relevant. Um, and, and redundant testimony is potentially still relevant. I mean, you know, they, they, they can um, uh, limit completely cumulative testimony, but um, sometimes you just want to, you know, the, office, the prosecution may summons one officer or call one officer, and you might want to call a couple more and just, you don't want to ask them all the same questions, but there may be a couple key issues. You want to know, does their story line up with the other officers? And that's fair game. Um, and that is relevant, um, you know, within limits. Um, and also don't be embarrassed to do a little bit of pure fishing. Um, and um, you know, the SJC in other contexts for probable cause hearings has specifically signed off on, um, you know, understanding that that pretrial hearings are an important way for defense counsel to learn about their case. And so, um, you know, yeah, you're going to get shut down eventually. Um, and so be careful to front load anything that you really care about. But um, don't be don't be ashamed to do a little bit of fishing, at least. Um, and, you know, one big strategic question is, should the client testify at the hearing? And um, so um, I think five years ago, I would have said pretty much no. Um, the theory being that, like, 
you know, especially for a warrantless search and seizure motion, if you know the Commonwealth has the burden, they either met their burden or they didn't. And if your client is getting up there and contradicting the cops, the judge is probably going to believe the officers. Um, I think that's still true sometimes. I still have actually not put a client on the stand for this type of motion before, but um, I've kind of wanted to. And um, I think you know you have to be aware that um, just like Amanda said, and just like for affidavits, you know their testimony cannot be used against them at trial in the Commonwealth case in chief, but it can be used um, to impeach them. So uh, if you're likely to go to trial or, and your client is likely to testify, then you probably don't want them testifying at the motion to suppress unless they absolutely have to. Um, uh, but uh, we also have to be careful of, you know, potential perjury charges if they start really going off the rails. Um, that would probably take a lot, but it's definitely possible. Um, and, you know, you have to be extra careful of how your client comes off um, uh, over any other witness. You have to prove them extra well. Um, you know, is there any chance your client is going to persuade the judge? It depends. I mean, are they outright contradicting the officers? Even then, maybe if there's like, evidence that also contradicts the officers. Um, but if they can just add some detail or color to the, the situation or maybe explain their own actions, or even if it's a loser, maybe sometimes it'd actually be worth just putting clients on. Um, you know, I think it's there are a lot of legal searches that are, you know, the law allows, but um, can still be, um, uh, I think, painful to clients to endure. And so I think it's worth, um, I wouldn't urge clients to do it just on that purpose, but if they want to testify um, and, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's worth it. And, and maybe it would, um, even if it doesn't help them out, maybe it'll help some client out down the road. Um, uh, you know, obviously just at the end of the day, you still have to know your client, know your judge. Um, but I, I would at least consider this uh, in a lot more cases than I think I would have um, until relatively recently. Um, and let, this is actually is my last slide. I think Amanda has one more. But um, so, you know, I heard defense lawyers sometimes say, you know, yeah, um, when they arrested my client, uh, they clearly had probable cause. So I don't think there's really a motion to suppress there. And, and you know, the burden's on them. Uh, the burden's on the prosecution. So I might encourage uh, defense lawyers to file a motion to suppress in everything case where there is, um, you know, some evidence to suppress unless you get a good reason not to. Um, like your client really doesn't want to, just wants to work something out, or there's an offer that's too good to refuse and, you know, just what the client wanted, or um, there might be in some rare case a tactical reason not to, you don't want to expose certain things to the Commonwealth beforehand, but um, the default should be that where there's, especially with a warrantless search and seizure, where the burden's on the prosecution, um, you should just go ahead and see what happens, because you never know, and Worst comes to worst, you've got a chance to ask the officers some questions on the stand and, and to see your client, for your client to see you actually fighting something, um, which is sometimes, sometimes you're just going through court date and court date and your client doesn't actually get to see you um, in the thick of things lawyering. So um, it, when the burden's on you, where there's, um, uh, you know, there's not really any evidence you'd expect to get out of the hearing that you think could be really relevant to trial or something like that, maybe not. But even then, um, uh, you know, number one, it's still sometimes good just to see your, for your client to see you fighting. And number two, um, don't count out a motion before you've really thought about it. Because sometimes there are you know, places where you, um, you see the police report and you say, oh, well, this is not a very good motion to suppress. But 
you haven't talked to your client or maybe you've missed some issue that um, some you know legal issue that if you spent some time prepping for the motion and writing it you might have found so um, so just do it the only two tips I wanted to give um, the first is primarily with respect to district court um, judges don't expect or really want um, anything from the Commonwealth ahead of time that is different and superior and often judges will expect a filing by the Commonwealth prior to um, the motion hearing. Um, I, I think in district court, anytime a judge is going to want or expect that ahead of time, they're going to tell you that. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever seen an instance where um, it's been expected but not uh, made known to the um, ADA ahead of time. And then the other thing is, um, this is a question that used to come up more frequently and is less frequent now, but still rears its head occasionally, which is if you make an, if you make an offer to a defendant prior to the motion, does that offer stand after the motion hearing? And the answer is yes. Um, I believe it, it, it is unethical to make an offer and then withdraw that offer because a person has exercised their constitutional rights. Um, so the, the, the general practice is that that offer made before the motion stands following the motion um, and the defendant should not be penalized for exercising those rights. And just to clarify, Amanda, what you mean by offer, you mean like oh, offer, offer for a resolution. Sorry, yeah, yes, resolve. offer for a resolution. So if you say to defense counsel that, um, you know, this is the Commonwealth Wealth offer, um, we'd offer a continuance without a finding, a guilty probation, whatever it is. Um, that recommendation that you would be making on the case is the recommendation you would make following the motion. I don't, so that's, that's the end of our presentation. I don't see any questions. Um, but this is everyone's contact info um, in case anyone does have any questions feel free to reach out to Jeff or Amanda. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for those who stayed extra. Yeah. <laughs>